0: Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us now as we um, we, we continue our journey through Esther chapter 7. I, um, I pray, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that your word would um, speak to each one of us. We all find ourselves in different places, different places. Um, places in our, in our journey, our walk with you. We're going through different struggles in our life. And so, Father, I pray that you, through your word, would would just uh, touch us personally. We, we long uh, for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther and the blessing that it's been. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ashuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose from from his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then, came, then the king said, "'Will he even assault the queen with me in the house?' As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, "'Behold indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, "'who spoke good on behalf of the king.'" And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us and direct us as we study uh, this wonderful little book of Esther. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So chapter 7, it's 10 verses. It's really simple. It's... If you're like me, you're happy. I've, I've already discovered that there's, there's at least one other person who has the same mindset as I do. Um, James Fredericks, when he came in, the first thing he did walking through the church doors was he high-fived me and said, Heyman hangs today! And I'm like, Amen, brother! Well, I've been waiting for this for weeks now. It's been killing me. Like we, She had two opportunities. Why don't they just fast forward? It took all my strength not to get here but he hangs. And the story, these 10 verses, it's it's really, it, it really is kind of cut and dry. In my mind, I have the first few verses, the first six verses, Esther spills the beans. She, she, she shares that she's Jewish. She shares what the situation is. Uh, the next section is, the king has a burst of anger. He walk, He storms out and then Haman is hanged. Simple as that. And so instead of well, instead of, I've decided with the story that we'll just work through the story, and at the end of it, I will share a few um, principles or lessons that I see from the story. And so the very first thing that we see in the very first verse working through the story is the word now. Now, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. Now, what is this now there for? What's, what's, what's our setting? What's the context The early part of Esther seemed to, we'd go from one chapter to the next and four or five years would elapse. Like there's a lot of time. In the last few chapters, everything's just bang, 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 happening all right away. Um, This banquet, I often in my mind when I think about this third banquet, or I, I guess if I hear banquet at all, I think like wedding party. I'm always have the sort of the evening mindset. But if we go back to verse uh, 14 of chapter 6, just right above there, we read, while they were still talking with him, that's Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And so that was the very end of our story last week. What had happened was, is um, the, the previous day, there was a, the first banquet that Esther had prepared. Um, she wanted to have Haman and the king together so that she could uh, share her problems. She could get a request. And when the time presented itself, she simply said, what my request is, is I'd like to have another banquet tomorrow. And so Haman leaves that banquet. He's excited. He's feeling great about himself. He goes home. He brags to his wife and all his friends about how many sons he has, how much money he has, how awesome he is. He's just a really great guy. But as he leaves the palace... There's Mordecai, and that stinking Mordecai will not bow at him. And regardless of how good his life is, he can't shake Mordecai's refusal to bow. And so he calls his friends together. They come up with this great plan. Hey, build a gallow, a a pole like a tree that's 70 feet high, and just execute Mordecai there. And so Haman says, this is a great idea. So they work all night. They build this huge gallow. Haman wants to go see the king first thing in the morning. He's there right away waiting to talk to the king about having Mordecai executed. It just turns out that that night, the king can't sleep. And so he, instead of counting sheep, he calls one of his attendants. He says, hey, go get me one of the chronicles. And, and the guy grabs one of the chronicles that happened to be from four years earlier where they discover that Um, the king's life was spared by Mordecai. The king's like, ah, what did we do for that guy? And they said, well, we didn't do anything for him. The king would get worried at this point that they didn't didn't do anything. Sort of their insurance was if somebody did something good to protect them or to take care of them, they would honor that person, and it sort of bred or compounded the sort of the desire of people to protect the king. And so for somebody to, to stop an assassination not to be rewarded. It's like, well, the next time it comes up, why would anybody put their neck on the line to try to protect the king? And the king says, we need to do something to protect this guy. And so he's like, who's out of the court? And so Haman's out there. There's a Haman's there. Oh, Haman's my trusted advisor. Let's, Let's meet. And so they both want to talk about Mordecai, but over very two separate issues. And the king says, who... Uh, what's, what's the protocol? What's the policy if I want to honor a guy in this situation? It's funny that he doesn't mention Mordecai until the very end. And so Haman, the kind of guy he is, where he thinks the world revolves around him, and he's uh, he, he naturally concludes, who else is there in the kingdom other than myself that the king would want to order or like honor? Certainly it's me. And so he says, you know, what? I don't need money. I got plenty of money. I have plenty of like position. But but if I can have more sort of influence over the people, that's what I want is to be recognized for how awesome I am. And so he tells the king, hey, what I want is, or he doesn't say what I want, that's what he's thinking. He says, for that guy, what you should do is put on a, a royal robe that only the king has worn. Grab one of the horses that only uh, the king has ridden on. Uh, grab a crown for the horse's face. And the, we, uh, well, instead of getting into the, the controversy or, or the, the confusion, because it's clearly for the horse. They say, how does that, How does a horse wear a crown? But this would be sort of like a faceplate for a bridle, and it would be the equivalent of um, a presidential car if the president's in the car and they put a flag up on the car to identify that this is a presidential limousine. I, I don't know that we do that anymore with the presidents for security. I know that they have like three limousines, and you know, they keep it a big surprise. But in the military, if there was an admiral on base, whether he had one star or three stars or four stars, Whatever vehicle he is, up on the front bumper, there'd be a little blue flag with the amount of stars. And everybody knew if that car was there, that meant the admiral was there. If you walk in the building, they'll raise a the flag with three stars on it, letting everybody know that the admiral is on site. And so I think that's what the faceplate was the horse, that, that it sort of this this acknowledgement. He says, and after we do this, get the highest prince in the kingdom and let him walk the horse around t- around town with this man on the horse declaring to the whole world, this is what happens to the man that the king wants to honor. And then the king looks at him and it's great. It's like the best sucker punch in this whole thing. He says, everything you've said, I'd love it. Run with it. Go everything. Don't leave everything out. Go get all the stuff and go grab Mordecai and put him on the horse and go do this for Mordecai. And so I last week even in my mind kind of had the picture that that this took all day long. It was like from sunup to sundown. But the more I, I ponder, it's probably like an hour or two. And the reason I think this is because as we get into chapter seven, immediately we go into the banquet. By the end of this banquet, Haman's going to be hanged. And then if we go into chapter eight, we don't resolve the issue of the whole edict that has been issued. Um, the king can't even undo this edict. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day, King Ashwaris gave the house of Aime. And we're going to see the story continues. So what I sort of see is this happened for about an hour or two. He goes home. I'm thinking it's like pre-lunch time. If you go to Europe today, lunch is like the biggest meal. They spend a lot of time there leading into the siesta. Uh, why don't we? This is one thing I wish we Americans could do, like nap time for everybody. Like That would be awesome have a big lunch, take a nap, come back to work around sunset, work for a couple more hours. That would be great. But that's another matter. But that's what I'm imagining here is that, that, that Haman comes back, it's before lunch. He tells his family at the very end of chapter six, suddenly the family that gave him this great idea to, to build the gallows, to have Mordecai hanged on it. Suddenly at the end of chapter six, they say, if this Mordecai is a Jew, which they already knew, like you're in trouble. You're doomed. There's nothing that you can do to stop the year. And as they break this news to him, the eunuch say, hey, come on, we got a party to go to. Let's let's rush to this party, which he was so excited to get to. And so now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. The banquet had begun. And as I get into this chapter, in this very first verse, two things really jumped out at me. The The first is... I kind of was hoping that, it keeps jumping out at me all week, I was sort of hoping that before I came to church today, I would be able to mature the thoughts in my mind. And before the first service, it didn't happen for the first service, and it still hasn't happened yet. But, But there's something, this, Haman came to drink wine. This chapter has 10 verses, and in the 10 verses, wine is mentioned four times. And I start thinking through Esther, and it just, wine and drinking is is mentioned a lot. And I'm not a, um, I have a hard time with the word, a, a, a tally, a teetotaler. Tea, That's not a word that we use anymore. Like I A person who's like staunch, like, you know, there are Christians that say that Jesus didn't turn water into wine. He turned water into grape juice or in. And that Christians under no circumstance should never, ever, ever, absolutely ever drink any sort of anything with alcohol, unless it's NyQuil. I don't think they have a problem with NyQuil. But I, but, but, and I'm not in that, like I personally, try, I don't drink. There's been a couple times where I have, I've been, I've been forced into a situation I've, where, I've, where I've had a, something to drink. And I'm kind of thankful for it because it kind of removed my legalism that was developing in my heart over the last 10 years or 15 years. Like when I was in Spain, I took communion with wine. And, you know, I don't need to have a confessional right now. But, <laughs> but, but although I really don't drink, I, I, as a pastor, it's funny when I get to situations and there's drinking available, people kind of look at me. I'll never forget our trip to Israel. We were down at the Dead Sea, and we had a bunch, like, a bunch of people from the church. And it was like at this hotel, it was like wine was sort of uh, complimentary with the buffet. Just go help yourself much as you want, and they are kind of, they all had water, and they're all, like, everybody else in the whole, like, huge banquet hall, they're all, like, having glasses of wine. Nobody's drunk, they're just having a glass of wine. And they all keep looking at me, and I'm kind of getting this really uncomfortable feeling. (laughs) And I'm like, guys, you know, I don't care if you have a glass of wine. Like, I, I could care less. Like, the Bible says drunkenness. Like, there's nothing about wine. And you could tell they all looked at me like, like, Oh, I forgot something. I'm gonna go <laughs> get it there. Like, it was really sort of funny. Like so, so the Bible doesn't necessarily like say that like having alcohol is wrong. There's all sorts of warnings about alcohol and drunkenness and sort of so there's this, there's this sort of this tension. And, and in Esther, like it just is like drinking wine, it's not really like overt other stuff, but i, I it's like The king was drinking wine after a few days. Then he has his his previous queen like, hey, I want to show you in your nakedness before the boys with your crown on. I think that would be a great idea. That didn't really work out so well for, for him or her. And then we see all of these decisions that like, and they were drinking, and then this horrible decision was sort of made. And it just, the whole idea of, see, and I haven't developed a thought yet. But but the mention of wine throughout this book, I really want to go through and count how many times is it mentioned. And if you talk to, see, as I've been studying Esther and and preaching through it, I'm really seeing from this book this wonderful picture of like God's sovereignty, his his faithfulness to, to his promises, his word, his protection of the Jewish people through whom the Messiah would come. And so from this book, the Jews celebrate Purim. And so I've gone to a number of my Jewish friends and I say, you know, like, I have an understanding of what Esther is about and I and I know how Jews celebrate Purim, but what, just you, you know, like, I, 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 I might have even said it, but like, hey, you as like a mediocre Jew, like what's your understanding of like Purim? And they're like, oh, it's a big party. The kids get toys and we dress up and we get the noisemakers, we drown out the stuff. And the rabbi actually like, Encourages the guys to get drunk. Like it's the what like we're allowed, it's a drunken party. And I'm like, is there anything more? And they kind of like is, there like, is there more in Esther? I'm like, yeah, like this is like God spared the Jewish people yet again. And it was he's not mentioned and his saw, everything's in there. Nah, no, we just get drunk and throw a big party. It's great. And I'm like, I'm like, well, even alcohol and Esther, I don't see this like I mean at the end there's a big party. So there's something like just notice as we go through this. Just know like this word is like they were drinking four times. They it's not that like he came back to, to the queen and Haman. He went back to the spot where he was drinking. It just I don't know. Maybe you guys will give me your answer later. And moving on, Gunner. The second word is queen. Esther's mentioned a bunch of times. Not a bunch. of She's mentioned a handful of times in Esther. There are whole chapters where she's not mentioned at all. In this. In this chapter of 10 verses, the title queen is used six of the seven times that she's mentioned. And so in this chapter, suddenly she's like sort of risen to this place of, I mean, she's been the queen the whole time, but suddenly here, there seems to be this heightened awareness of that she is the queen, that there is authority. And it just jumps out at me. That In this chapter, the word queen is used a bunch. And so here they are at the banquet. They're drinking. Haman's there. The king's there. This is the third event in which the king has said, well, let's get there, verse two. And the king said to Esther on the second day, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And if I allow myself to kind of stay in the immediate of the story, see, see, I know how the story ends. But if I just stop with his question without allowing my mind to go forward, my inside is like bursting. Like I want to grab her and say, Tell him. This is the third time. He's going to get sick of asking you questions. He already asked you once. He asked you at the banquet. He asked you when you approached him and he didn't kill you. He said, What's your problem? What do you want? And you just said you want to have a banquet tonight and bring Haman. And then you had, he, he conceded. He he brought her to that banquet. And then there at the end of the night, he says, I can see something bug, bugging you. You asked Haman to come. It wasn't just like you need time with me. It's like you want us both. What's what's the issue? Up to half the kingdom. For the second time, he says that at the second banquet. And she says, well, what I really want is to have another banquet tomorrow. And so I read this, and i think she's going to answer, and she's going to say, I want to have another banquet tomorrow. Like I just think she wants to have a third banquet and a fourth banquet. And but then there's relief in my soul. In verse three, she says, "Then Queen Esther replied." And I love her humility, her posture, her poise, her her whole disposition just displays total and complete wisdom and discernment, and the Spirit's leading. And she says, if I have found favor in your sight, O King, and if it pleases the King, the, 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 hear the King three times and says, anything you want, up to half the kingdom, whatever I can do for you, I'll do for you. And she says, if I found favor in my sight, if I was him, I'd be like, of course you found favor in my sight. You're my queen. I chose you among all of the women. I chose you. This is the third time I've asked you, up to half the kingdom. But but still how she approaches this is she's humble. She's respectful. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition. I want to sort of stop there. So, so as she gets to her request, she says the first thing is that her petition is that her life be given. And it's almost like this, this exchange. She this whole time has exercised great courage. From the moment that she went before the king, she knew that her neck was on the line, that she risked being executed right away. This whole journey, at any moment, things could go terribly wrong for her. But as she makes her request, her petition, she's going to see that there's an exchange here, that she says that my life may be given as my petition and my people as my request. So there's sort of this, I'm willing to give my life. My request is that my people would be spared even if it cost me my life, that there's something greater than her own self-interest that she wants her people to be spared, and she goes into verse four and she says, "For we have been sold." I think, well, how, how? Wait, how was she sold? We're going to look at the story, but as we as we go back a couple chapters and look, notice that when Haman starts this. He starts his request with the king with, there's these people, I'm willing to fund the whole operation. Um, and I sense from Haman that there's a, this slipperiness about him. And I'm sure how he uh, presented his request before the king, he said he's trying to move on. He just wants to get this, this seal or you know, his, I, I said during the last service, his signature using modern terms, but, but really to put his stamp. His authorization that this execution of all of the Jewish people could happen. And when we look through the edict, what was going to be, happen is the day after Passover, when, it would, when the day would fall, all of them would be executed and all of their belongings, all of their possessions, all of their wealth, all of that stuff would be deposited into the treasuries of the government. And so that's sort of the sale that she recognizes. Okay, we're still at verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She still hasn't identified who, who her people are. And I get the sense in this story that there's. See, we see the big picture. We understand that Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, that they're related. We understand that because of that relationship, we know that Esther's Jewish. We know that Mordecai's Jewish. But if we follow the storyline line, as she rose to this place of position, position, Mordecai consistently told her, you hide your Jewishness. So while we know they're related, I'm not so sure that the king understands that Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, and I'm not so sure that Haman gets... That The queen is is related. They all know each other, but they don't know how the parts sort of fit together. It it reminds me of back, it was, um, well, I know it was before Anna and I got married. We were not married at the time. But see, when I met Anna's family, I was traveling a lot. I met her in church. I kind of met a lot of her family independent of one another. And I liked her. I was kind of like, ooh, this is a nice girl. I got to kind of like, you know, Work the magic, so we end up married, which happened. And, uh, and, and I try to embarrass her every now and again. Or embarrass me is what it's really doing. And and so then I knew I was leaving for deployment. But I really felt like God was calling me to, like, uh, to, to get involved more. To sur- I didn't know what it felt like. And the church had sort of take a spiritual gifts test, and you got to meet with a pastor. And so I did all of this, and I met with Pastor John, who I'd known, And in talking with him, like, part of our, like, beginning conversation, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I know you and Anna have been, like, hanging out. And, uh, you know, I just really love my daughter a lot. And I was kind of like, i I like, your daughter? This girl's married to, I mean, the the daughter of a pastor? And I was like, I'm in so much trouble. And he starts, like, and it was, like, this moment when I realized that, like, Anna's mom was her mom. Like, I knew her as a lady. And she was the last one I met, but then there was like her brother and all of the, I didn't, re- like suddenly the light bulb came on like, oh, I thought you guys were just all friends. you all related. This really ups the ante and how like, how am I going to marry a pastor's daughter? Like, I, this is not good. And I feel like this is Haman's eyeballs sort of like pop open. See, see she uses verbiage that Haman would know because Haman wrote the edict. So look at what she says. Same in verse four. Those three things, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If you turn back to chapter three, verse thirteen. So we go back there. This is Haman had already worked his magic with with uh, with the king. He'd gotten permission. He'd gotten his signet ring. He'd 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 got everything in order so he could get this edict to go out so that the Jews would be destroyed. And look what it says, verse thirteen. Letters were sent by couriers to. All of the king 's provinces to destroy, to kill and annihilate, notice that exactly word for word, those three things she 's quoting right from the edict, but what she leaves out she says, my people she doesn 't say the jews i don 't even know that the king at this point when she says to kill what 's the order uh, to kill to destroy to annihilate or vice versa whatever those three my people i don 't know that the king thinks oh they 're Jews. See, now he didn't really have a bone to pick with the Jews. They were just people in his empire. Haman had bad blood. He was the Agagite that goes back to Saul. He had bad blood against the Jews. He knows exactly the Jews. And so when she says this, I can just say, oh no, the king is married to a Jewish woman. Who would have thunk that? I'm toast. What have I done? I mean, he's in. Like when she says, "I and my people," I think the connections all lined up. Mordecai and her and this and oh, I, I'm doomed. And the edict, look at it, continues both young and old um, to kill to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children. And one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, that is the day after Passover and to seize their possessions as a plunder. A copy of the edict is to uh, to be issued as law, in every providence was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, while the king and Haman sat down to drink. There it is again. The city was in confusion. The whole nation is put into total turmoil, because this edict went out that all of the Jewish people and the king and Haman sit back and they start drinking while the whole, everything's out of control. Coming back to chapter seven, middle of verse four, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. She basically says, if we were just sold into slavery, ah, we're Jewish, we're used to that, no big deal. I wouldn't have troubled you over being sold into slavery. Like Your time is far too valuable to deal with something as small as for our whole people. But the issue, what's going on is all of us, a decree has been set for all of us to be executed. And only because of the magnitude of this am I even bothering you with this matter. And in verse 5, the king explodes after she spills the beans. The king Then King Ashwaris asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do this? The king is angry, and, and, and we don't want to get our minds sort of off track. Don't don't start reading into this guy that he's some great guy. He's not upset that some people group is, just about, is about to be annihilated. I don't think that that's the issue at all. Like, this, this is the guy that's policy was if somebody comes to my office and I didn't ask for them, just automatically take off, well, I don't know if they took off their heads, but kill them. And leave it to me to stop you, but I just want you to know, kill anybody that approaches me that I don't ask for. And if my queen doesn't come with me, I want to deal with her the same way. Like, this was a brutal man and so I believe that from what I my study is that the anger was sort of borne out as this attack was against the queen and her people and so if there's an attack on the queen and her people that's an attack on him and and his kingdom and so now he's furious like who has assaulted me and he says who is this guy? And as this story sort of unfolds, Queen Esther has already sort of, just by approaching the king, she put her life at, in jeopardy. Some have suggested that she's was too sort of cowardly. She lost her courage, and that's why she called for the second banquet. And then in the second banquet, that's why she called for the third banquet because she just didn't have the courage. I, The more I s- study this and and familiarize myself with these characters. I, I really believe that when Esther told Mordecai, if I perish, I perish, she, she was committed at that point. And now she's, she's figuring out how to, for lack of a better term, like play her cards, like what's the best way to, to go about this? She's in a chess match. How do I handle this? And, and so in this conversation, the third time when the king says, uh, like I asked you before, the time before, what's bothering you? Uh, up to half the kingdom, what's, how can I help? And I believe as she speaks, she starts out very humble. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition. By the time the next word, and my people as my request, I believe at that point she crossed a line, the, the point of no return. It's like a child, when I was a kid, that first time jumping off the high dive, and you make that first step, and you can't like, You're flying the 10 feet through the air going, I wish I could have undone this, but I can't. Like, I'm like, I'm airborne now. She's now committed. And I believe that she, if she started out very soft-spoken, I believe by this point, when the king says, who did this, I just see her chest pounding. I see her shaking. I see her, I've got to let it all out. This is my case. This is my opportunity, this is the moment. And it doesn't say she was pointing at it, but I believe when she says verse six, she's standing and like pointing at Haman. A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And this would have come as a total blow to the king. Haman was his trusted advisor. He was we saw in the reward that was given to Mordecai where where he had said. In verse 9 of chapter 6, and the horse to be handed over to the king's most noble princess. This is like the high, next to the king, the next guy, other than the queen, the next male figure is Haman. And she just condemned Haman. The the king knows what has to be done. He has to be killed. There's no wrestling match in the king's mind what has to be done. And in verse 7, he's furious. We see that the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the, the palace garden. He steams off. And, and again, see, there's this, like, you piece together the story. Anytime I mention God, since we've been through Esther, like, I'm inserting into the text because God's not mentioned. In, in my study here, like, you first think that he's so upset that, like, he's, that, that his good friend, like, betrayed him and he doesn't know how to handle it. I, it's clear by his reaction in the second part, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. He knew that when she sold him out, I don't know if it's selling him out, but if she made the accusation, he knew capital punishment was due him. He could have chased the king out to try to beg from and plead with the king, but he recognizes that his best play is with the queen. And so he stays back pleading for his life. And the king, I think, is not out there necessarily wrestling through do i kill this guy or not kill the guy he's dead but but the issue is this is my right-hand man three days ago four days ago whatever this is he's issued multiple edicts i've given him my ring to give this seal of approval that's as good as my word and now i'm having him executed this would be like the president who's his right-hand man for all the laws and handling the fair, like the attorney general everything's going great then you wake up and read the paper and it says oh the president just had the had the attorney general executed what, 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 what happened? And I think that there's some sort of like political internal struggles. How am I going to handle this? Like how how is this going to play? And I don't think that there's a guy who thinks well for himself. He's a guy who followed other people's advice all the time. And so he's out there. He's out there thinking. While that's happening, Haman is groveling. Haman stayed to beg for his life from the queen from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden in the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So you have this picture. The king's angry. He returns. There's Haman falling at the foot, the couch. These banquets, they would recline very Eastern, very casual in how they eat if you, you know, if you go to a Thai restaurant or something, you eat on the floor. It's a relaxed setting. It's so she. So, so this would be like a, a a long event, and so now he's like like at her feet, begging, pleading, whatever. And the king walks in, and I believe at this point the king finds his answer of how he's going to play this politically. See, up to this point. Some have said, well, he was executed because he touched the queen. Well, if that was the case, these guys are already standing by. The executioners would have responded even in the king's absence. But as the king comes in, he says, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And there's this picture. Some, I believe, translations use that word assault as the word to molest. Sort of like there's this, he's taken hold of her, he's, he, which isn't what he's doing. If we remember the story about um, uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know, the, i got to get the song right. There's the story of, don't tell me, Potiphar's wife was not the queen. She's trying to make the moves on Joseph. And what's he do? He, like, tries to get out of the situation. He flees, but his coat is there. And she says, oh, he tried to do this. I fought him off, and he fled. And so then he was basically thrown into jail, And so the king, I think, comes in, and he's like, Haman just received the death penalty. I don't think he's trying to rape or molest Queen Esther. He's pleading for his life, but the king, as he says this, making, you would have the audacity to assault my wife right here in my palace when I'm here. And as he speaks those words, it was his words and what he says that instantly causes his eunuchs to respond with capital punishment or to start the process. It says, as the word went out from the king's mouth, they covered his face. So they immediately, when the king makes this accusation that you would assault my wife here. Well, there's the front lines. Haman assaulted the queen and was put to death last night. That's the headlines tomorrow morning. I mean, back then. And the printing press wasn't there, so this is just, you know modernizing it. Now, verse 9 is, is kind of interesting. All of the pieces sort of get put together for a number of the players, but the eunuchs, see, they were like regular people. I mean, they, they seem to have information to what was going on out in the town because suddenly they spill the beans. Like, like they clearly have a bigger picture of, of what's going on, and, and they're able to sort of maybe address how they feel about Haman and the whole situation, because they seem to have like the whole picture. It says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. They like get everything. They know Mordecai saved the king's life. They, well Because they, they probably got the guys that were executed jobs. Like they probably were the ones that were advanced. They understood that Haman, just last night for them, had built this 75-foot gallows to hang Mordecai on. And they're like, hey, check it out. Haman built this gallow last night. Why don't we just go take care of business on that? That'll be kind of funny, won't it, right? And the king says, off with him. And the king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. Well, the king's good again. There's a threat, he did this. Hey, he's off with him. The problem's not solved because still we have this edict. The, the, the king can't just say, hey, uh, strike that from the record. Let's cancel that edict. If you remember with Daniel, when he was sort of like tricked and the king made the, the thing where he had to be thrown into the lion's den, the king finally gets wind of it. He can't do anything. He sits outside all night hoping that nothing happened because he who signed or stamped the edict doesn't have the authority to break his own command. And so now this edict, the Jews are still in trouble, but that's going to sort of develop. And so in this story, some of the, like, as I'm, like, mu- like these 10 verses, she spills the beans, king gets angry, Haman is hanged. ooh finally. There's three things that sort of jump out to me from this portion of the story that I've been thinking of. And I'm not saying they're, like, they're not, they're definitely, like, the main, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. This is a very plain story. But as I'm teaching through it, there's some things that have been sort of jumping out at me that I that I the, the first thing is the whole Esther's sensitivity. And for us who are Christians, like I really think that there's a lesson here for us to become more sensitive. And and, and when I say sensitive, don't I'm not talking about when you're out with your non Christian friends and they're cussing and they say, Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. It's like, dude, I'm not offended. Like I you cussing—that's you're, you're like—that's your deal. That's not my deal. Like I—I I was in the Navy. I've heard a few words before. Like it's not like I'm not—I'm not talking that we need to be more so easily offended over everything that anybody does. That it's like oh that's so offensive. How can you say that? No, like we need to kind of toughen up in some areas. But but by sensitivity I mean sort of sensitivity to the spirit. That here Esther. I believe as she entered into this where I would be prone to to just you you make your approach to the king I would just splurt out everything that's on my mind but she holds back she waits to the second time and then finally the third time the situation had developed that she felt led there was what we don't know the background story but clearly she held out and I think that there's something about for those of us who are impatient like me and James, who are high-fiving each other because Haman's finally hanging, that, that there's a time to like bite your tongue. There's a time to pray and to wait and just to be patient and to allow God to move and to develop a situation. And, and I need that sort of sensitivity to sort of, because I've put my foot in my mouth so many times. I've rushed to sort of Something early on, and I was way off base because I jumped to a conclusion. I just wanted to get the ball moving, but but then it's been interesting talking with Anna. Like you know, Anna's my like, I kind of talk through the text with her. We're we're friends, and uh, and so her personality is very different than me. See, see, I'm not afraid to stir the pot. I'm not afraid to like, hey, let's let's get a little excitement in here. Anna is and there's a lot of like not when I say a lot of us, I'm not talking about me. Like I there are people who just don't want to stir the pot. They don't want to make waves, they don't they don't want, want to to get involved in stuff, they don't want to upset people. And so you could read Esther and you like there is that sort of a what if she did like she recognizes but she wants to keep delaying it. And I do think that sometimes being sensitive to the Spirit, even when we're being patient, there comes a time when the Spirit says, respond. And we, out of our fear, out of our lack of courage, whatever it is, we don't want to respond. And so when I look at this, the Ephesians five fifteen and 16. So if you'll turn with me over to Ephesians. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so he makes this like, hey, listen, the world around us is evil. We need need to be careful how we walk. We need to be careful how we live our lives. It says we need to make the most of our time. And for, I think for, I mean, I only think I had this, like this, like this revelation or this understanding of this text like about a year or maybe two years ago. I read this wrong for a long time. When I read Make the Most of Your Time, my default, my personality is we only have 24 hours in a day. I need to get as much done, to be as, much, as productive as I can, work, 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 do, 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 get everything done in as little time as we have because life is fleeting, so do as much as you can. The problem is, is this word time. Greek has two words that the English translates into time. The first is chronos, and that's time like a clock, how I was seen. The other is kairos. And these are more like opportunities that present themselves in our lives. Like they're just, not every day is the same. Not every day presents the same opportunities. There there are situations where where the moment is just right. And and you you only have that chance to make to to make the move. And if God is prompting you, you need to respond. And I think that's what He said: know what the will of the Lord is, so that when you're in the, be sensitive to the Spirit, so when opportunities unfold, that, that you have the wisdom to either not to move or to move. And in thinking about this, I I didn't even realize it was Father's Day. Don't forget the cookies back here. Is with kids like it's father's day i didn't plan it for this way but hey it works out perfect i shouldn't have sold myself out is one lesson that i've really learned from generations those that have walked the path before me that are 10 15 20 years down the road with parenting i get the same message from all parents And I really got mad at Joel Cuyers, and I'll say his last name for the record. Elizabeth was just born. Brand new baby. What day of the week was she born on? I know Anna will know. Monday. I come to church on Sunday. Oh, look at this. Cute little baby girl. Now, Joel that weekend had married his daughter. Like, not he. His daughter had gotten married. (laughs) And so I, like, walk in. I'm like, oh, isn't Ellie sweet? They're just precious. Joel comes up to me with tears in his eyes, and he said, "She's already gone. She'll be gone before you know it." I'm like, "Joel, she's just born on Monday. <laughs> it's Sunday, Day-. And he's like crying, "She's gone." I'm like, "You jerk! Let me have the moment." <laughs> like, but I notice it all like pe- like like adults. I mean, maybe adults. See, I still don't identify with myself as an adult. I'm 40 years old almost, and I'm like. Adults are those people. (laughs) Not any of us here. We're all a bunch of, well, but they say your time is so short. And so I see like one of these like opportunities is they all seem to say that time that you have with your kids is so special and you only have a short amount of time to influence them to lead them to prepare. So don't waste this time. And so that really stands out to me, especially when I was like, well, I, I'm like got other stuff, you know, like they're going like, to, like, according to Joel, they're already gone. Now, on the other opportunities are, like like one opportunity, like the whole spilling the beans, not that I, I don't even think I'm on the spilling the beans, stuff, but but there's making the most of opportunities when God is prompting you. And I see from Esther, this all ties back to Esther, that at this moment, She let the cat out of the bag. Her Jewishness was revealed. I think about my friend, Tom, who every Memorial Day, I go to his grave. The last time I saw him in in person, I think it was, it had to have been, I think like 99. And the last time I saw him, it was in the SEAL Team three weight room. Just to be clear, I wasn't working out. I had, uh, I don't lift weights, but there was a good water fountain in the weight room, so I went to go get a drink of water. He was working out. We were like best friends through training. Um, I was, I was just getting ready to go on deployment or coming back, and he was getting ready to ship out to SEAL Team Six. And there was this, we stopped and hey, how you doing? How's life? How's the, what's going on? And and he was sharing with me how he's, you know, he was there working out, getting ready to go to Green Team, and. And I just, I had become a Christian. I had been a Christian for like maybe six months or or maybe a couple years, but we hadn't seen each other. And I was so convicted that I was supposed to share with him that I had become a Christian. And to share with him, and I remember having this, like I'm talking to him and I'm having this argument with God, God saying, share with him about what's happened to you. And I remember saying to God, like, God, you don't know Tom. Like, you don't know like what he's kind of, I mean, God knew Tom and I felt super convicted to share Christ with him, but I didn't. And that was an opportunity that I'll never, like I there's no evidence that he heard the gospel, that there's not, and it, it, it sits with me. And so I think there's a time when the Spirit prompts, like, like, like being patient and being sensitive, that doesn't mean that there's not a time to speak. And when I look at Esther, to call out the number two person to the king that took courage. It took a lot of courage and a lot of sensitivity to spirit to like prompt her. And so the whole spilling the beans, the standing with Christ, there's a couple things. I've got to go to the T-shirt here. We have T-shirts for VBS. And I realized as I was like thinking about this, I'm like, hey, this is the theme of VBS. So the front of the shirt, it says, discover, dis- decide, and defend. little website on the back. And a Bible verse. And so when I started thinking about Esther spilling the beans, she identified herself with God's people at that point, that she made this proclamation. That I was a Christian for many years, and I've talked to a lot of people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I believe that's just between God and me, and we don't really advertise it, and we don't really, we're not in community. And I think that there's a time to stand with Christ. Now, I say that with, that we have a church and this church, I don't care, I mean, I I do care. I care if you're a Christian or not. But I don't care if you're not a Christian and you attend the church. I want non-believers to feel welcomed here, that they can take time. I don't do altar calls. I, I don't say, hey, every week, hey, this is a decision, come forward. I, I don't do that, and it's not accidental. It's I want people to, to, to take time to ponder, to wrestle uh, you don't just run off and get married to somebody making a commitment to Christ is, a, is is that's a big commitment and i want people to take the time to investigate to study to research and i want to welcome people who are here that aren't necessarily believers that they would wrestle with the things of the gospel that they would they would they would really think through things because that decision is a big decision and i know some people would say well You never know, you might die. And I don't know. I might die on the way home from church today. It could happen. I mean, it totally could. But the reality is, is most of us, we have time. And so I think that there's a a decision is needed, but we need to wrestle through things. And I don't know what Esther was going through, but we know years went by before she identified and took this stand for God, before she spilled the beans before the king. But but there is a time for a decision. she crossed that line, and in the Christian life I don't see i I don't see the walking the aisle as as one of the things in scriptures, but what do i I see in the scriptures for the second point of deciding is I see baptism that baptism is the Christian's proclamation that they identify with Christ that they're walking with him it's a symbol am I still married? you know. The wedding ring coming off doesn't unmarry me. I'm not now married. It's a symbol. The baptism doesn't save you. But what baptism does is it's this public sort of identification with Christ. I struggled with baptism as a... As I... My, it's my pride. I'd become a Christian in 96. As I grew in my relationship with Christ and studying the scriptures... By the time, like, 2000, well, I would say somewhere in the 2000 range, I started to recognize, like, man, people get baptized after they have faith. And I, and, and I, I was wrestling, well, I need to be baptized. But then I had this picture of when I was a little kid in the Catholic church and the priest was holding me and I know it was my baptism. And and, and so then I started going, you know, no, I've been a Christian for a couple of years now. That seems so elementary and like taking a step backwards. And I don't want to lose ground by getting baptized. So I'll just sort of in my mind, even though I wasn't a believer in this picture, I know that I was baptized then. But then the conviction started like really rubbing me like bad. And so I remember one night I was on a dive. We were walking walking into the water at like 10 o'clock at night into the San Diego Bay. My swim buddy was tied to me six feet away, and I basically just dunked myself in the water and I baptized myself. He's like, hey, what happened? Did you trip or something? I'm like, no, 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 I just baptized myself. Don't worry about it. He's like, whatever, dude, you're weird. like, come on. And, <laughs> and so then I like met Anna, and we started. like I think the church was going to do a baptism, and Anna and I weren't married. And she started really, like, it really ticked me off that she, like, was really kind of, like, challenging my baptism. But I really liked her. And then I, like, so God used her to really kind of convict me and so I was in Denver, and I was running this marathon, the Jesus Run Marathon. I died at 20, mile 20. I picked myself up, met this guy, Bud. Bud was a pastor. I'm friends with him now on Facebook. He was a pastor from Georgia. We start running. I'm like, hey, man, there's a lake at the end of this. You mind? I, I got a situation back at home. I think I need to get baptized. Will you baptize me at the end? He's like, yeah, that'd be great. I'm like, we'll just keep running. And you just dunk me at the very end. We'll, no big deal. We'll just do it. We get to the end of the race. He's like, what hotel are you staying? And I'm like, I'm staying at the Marriott or whatever it was, and he's like, I'm staying at that same hotel. How about we meet at the pool at like five o'clock? I'm like, there'll be people there. And he's like, exactly. And I'm like, oh, it's a public thing. It's a baptism is you declaring to the world, I now identify with Christ. And so there I was baptized, in the Marriott with the kids swimming and screaming. It was like the most embarrassing thing I'd ever done. Like it was bad. <laughs> So there I was and I got dunked. But then I had peace afterwards. And so I think that this is the whole deciding. And and we as Christians, we need to figure out what does deciding mean? There's, there's this tension. There's like we're in the world not of the world. We're we're to we're to be holy and set apart. And so somewhere in the middle we based on convictions, we need to make a stand. And this is what I like the whole defend this verse on the back first Peter 3:15. I'll just read it to you. It says, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that lies within you. And so the idea is that if you're a Christian and you're living your life, your life will look different to those that don't know Christ and they will ask. And then we're supposed to respond. I don't know what the policy is on everybody likes free t-shirts and I don't know what what the policy is on doing this in church, but I decided to do it. So I'm going to turn around I'm going to chuck it. Oh, it went, I was trying to avoid Larry and it like went right to him. <laughs> free t-shirt in church, you know. Um, and then the final thing that we'll close with is the whole supremacy of God. Like you can't go through Esther and to see like all of these situations, themes developing, but to see that God in the shadows is working out all things for good. And the irony that here... How did Haman get in this situation? Haman got in this situation because he was so ticked off that a Jewish man would not bow before him. And the story ends with Haman doing what? Falling at the feet of a Jewish woman. And it ends with him being hung on a tree. And so where I want to end... Is with Philippians chapter 2. If you'll turn there with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I I can't help but to see the cross. When you read the New Testament and you look at how the New Testament describes the cross, you see that man nailed Jesus to the cross out of evil. But it wasn't happenstance all the way through, but God met it for good. God had a plan. God planned this the whole way along. I can't imagine being Jesus's mom. Like Mary was a real person. That was her boy. That was the child that she raised. The disciples who knew Jesus as he's hanging there. How can this be? There was no question that he's the Messiah. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him raise dead people. They saw him heal people. They saw him multiply from nothing bread and fish and feed it like all kinds of things. And then he's executed. How how can this be? Well, how could it be that through that God's plan was that we would have life, that our sins would be paid for? It doesn't make sense. And in Philippians chapter two, verse five, I'll go quick. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And so when I see this picture, first it starts out, we can never miss it. The whole point of this passage is that we would have humility in our hearts like Christ had. Haman had no humility. And it basically describes his U-turn, that here's Jesus in heaven. He comes to earth. He dies on the cross, the most shameful, horrific way to possibly die. Then he rose from the grave, and then he says that that he's elevated to the place where every person will fall down and bow. Will either fall down and bow and confess that he's Lord as Savior or to our condemnation. Like if you don't believe this is the end, that we will ultimately, every person, believer or not, will recognize that Christ is Lord. And there's this whole theme of trust. Like We need to trust in him. And so Father, we all have different circumstances in our life where we might be in seasons of difficulty or joy and Lord, there's circumstances at times when we can't see how in the world you're working or what you're doing. But Father, we pray that as Esther was so sensitive to your leading, we pray that you would give us the same sort of sensitivity to your leading, that we would clearly be able to hear and identify your voice in, in difficult times, in good times, that we would respond to your voice. Father, we pray, Lord, if there are people who don't know you as Savior, we pray that you would help them to connect the dots that they need to where they could place their faith in you. And for those of us who have trusted, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fully trust that we would continue in our trust and our belief with you. We thank you, Lord. You're so good to us, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.